Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, welcome. Uh, this is an unusual show. Maybe they're all unusual shows, but uh, this is a show that resembles no other that I can remember us doing, at least recently. We're going to focus on a production of the Scottsboro Boys, um, and but we're going to also spread out our conversation from there because the Scottsboro Boys does naturally spread out into history and, and into modern jurisprudence and into our attitudes about race and into our attitudes about minstrelsy. It's all kind of packed there onto the stage at Playhouse on Park in West Hartford uh, where this Candor and Ebb musical uh, is currently being staged by a very, very talented uh, and, uh, and agile and physically adept uh, and vocally adept cast. This is a very demanding show for the ensemble uh, that's up there. So we have um, uh, people with all kinds of connections to this thing. We sh- I should also say that because uh, of the volatile and disturbing nature uh, of the material, and of course it's all based on history, um, the Playhouse on the Park has decided to have um, talkbacks after every show. They've asked people to come in from the community and mediate those talkbacks. And so we have uh, two of the people here uh, who are doing that. Uh, but first of all, let me just tell you who's in studio here. We've got four guests. Sean Harris, co-founder or co-artistic director at Playhouse on Park. Ivory McKay, the actor who plays the role of Mr. Bones uh, in this production of Scottsboro Boys, also pro- has performed in La Cage Folle, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, also with us uh, is Gail Hardy, a state's attorney for the Judicial District of Hartford, uh, and Devarian Baldwin, a histor- historian, cultural critic, and professor of American studies at Trinity College in Hartford. Uh, he's the author of Chicago's New Negroes, Modernity, The Great Migration, and Black Urban Life. So um, we got to start out, I guess, uh, with a sense uh, of what this show is. Maybe not everybody knows the historical story. So um, uh, I'm going to have uh, Ivory and John and Sean together kind of uh, flesh that out a little bit. But uh, maybe, Ivory, you can get us going here. What's the story we're telling? The story we're telling is an event that happened in 1931 to nine uh, African-American boys and their journey to uh, Alabama. Mm. And they were on a train heading for whatever you know dreams they were following at that day and ran into a horrible event that changed their lives forever. Yeah. And Sean, maybe give us a little sense of that horrible event. Yeah, they were um, accused, uh, falsely accused of raping two white women. Victoria Price and Ruby Bates. And that event that happened um, resulted in many, many years of uh, imprisonment in uh, in the state of Alabama mm-hmm. and uh, where some of the young men were released in like 43 three, and then some in 47. Yes. Uh, but it really destroyed their lives forever. And I mean, you know, when when we say all of this and then we say musical, well, we know that musicals are increasingly more like opera. You can do a musical about almost anything. Yes. But but Ivory, this is 
this is challenging. The notion that you are going to hear potentially toe-tapping music, that you are going to applaud at the end of a song, which is really uh, a song recounting some horrible act uh, of racism or injustice. I mean, this is complicated material to have a relationship with as a musical. Yes, but that is the art form that this was. This piece was crafted by by Neb and the original director Susan Stroman, um, and it's just a different way of introducing the event. Hmm. Um, we know there's documentaries out. There are book two books out by Clarence and by Haywood Patterson. And uh, when this event came to Broadway in 2010, it was using a Kandernev style. It was going to do a show within a show within a show. The minstrel show telling about a true event through musical theater genre and uh, it just serves the purpose wonderfully. So yeah, so Kandernev, uh, famous um, yes. uh, for Cabaret, for Chicago, uh, for New York, New York, uh, is a Kandernev yes. tune. Uh, I had the chance to interview them years ago down at the Goodspeed where they were restaging a show called The Happy Time. Oh, yeah. um, but you know, uh, Sean, this musical wasn't, it didn't really make it to the stage until six years after Ebb's death. Now, part of that was Ebb had died. It wasn't all the way done. Mm-hmm. Um, all the lyrics were not uh, complete on it. And it was obviously also just a thunderbolt that Fred Ebb had died. But also, I'm assuming it didn't make it to the stage for six years because, like, how are you going to do this show? It's, it's, I'm sure investors are not running out there going, oh, yeah, no, I'd like to put some money in this. Right, exactly. And uh, Ivory's talked about this before, but um, one very interesting thing that we found is uh, how many different iterations they went in the development of it. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, uh, I think in the beginning they stuck to a, a a big minstrel, like a very specific minstrel format. Uh, that then, as the the story of the men came to more to um, fruition they started toning back on the the minstrelsy i think they also were questioning like who is going to be playing these roles Mm -hmm. um would it be done by a white cast would it be done by a black cast and so um in 2000 i'm not exactly sure because it was at the vineyard theater and then it went to broadway Mm -hmm. um so it's like 2010 2011 was really um when it first came to new york and that's that's the style that they they settled in and, and, and who was going to be playing the roles. So uh, we can actually hear a little bit from the, uh, I think, maybe final performance, maybe in that vineyard role. I don't know. The, the run, I think the Broadway run is only about two months, but yeah. uh, two, two months, like 12 Tony nominations. Yes. Uh, but uh, let's hear a little bit. Uh, this is, I think, from the, from the final night of that run. Well, I's fine, but I think that lady in the front row is sharp. She's just never seen so many big black buttons. Mr. Tambo, she's just not used to seeing you in those clothes. And I ain't used to seeing her in hers. Hey, hey, I play all kinds of characters. Tambo, he does too. I do! Mean men! King men! White men's our specialty! Even those who know them always know who is who. Sing along! Or tell us a joke if you want to, that's alright! Hey, 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 join in the merriment! Everyone's a minstrel tonight! 
So, um, Gail Hardy, one of the many uh, things that I found shocking in preparing for the show is to hear that when you were a high school student in Waterbury, um, yes. they had minstrel shows performing at the high school? Yes, Help they me out did. with this. Um, I attended Sacred Heart High School in Waterbury from 1976 to 1980. Hmm. And in my graduating class, there were... Um, seven, mm. seven black students. And every year there was a production throughout the school and it was a, it was a menstrual show. Mm. And we were expected to attend. Some participated, none of the black students, but you we sat and we watched. And, and was it white actors in blackface? white actors in blackface. Wow. And in fact, when um, one of uh, earlier this year, there was um, a Virginia candidate for governor, mm-hmm. I believe, yeah. who um, I guess during the course of um, background checks, they learned that he was pictured in his yearbook in blackface. And, you know, I actually, I actually said, you know, if any of my classmates or persons who went to Sacred Heart during that time were to run for higher office, this is something that may come out and may derail those opportunities. Mm. So, um, you know, it might be worth uh, kind of t- contextualizing this a little bit. And, and Devarian, maybe you can help us out with this. So minstrel shows were typically performed by white actors in blackface for the purpose of what, deepening certain stereotypical ideas about uh, black people? For sure. So um, it must be noted that first blackface minstrelsy did start in the North mm-hmm. and traveled South. Um, but it very much so was about exploring the anxieties that black people, that, that white people held with regards to <laughs> black upper mobility, with regards to the end or dismantling of slavery, um, with regards to kind of playing out white anxieties about um, black and white parity and trying to represent black people in ways that suggest they were unfit for freedom, unfit for the modern world, unfit for the city. Um, yeah. And, and, and I mean, there are other iterations of it. There were, I think, some minstrel shows that were black performers in whiteface, too. I mean, there was, but uh, yeah. the majority of them, I think, were, were as, we, uh, as he describes them. And so, you know, Ivory, as we think about this, so there's a way in which almost in, in a manner reminiscent of cabaret, mm-hmm. the minstrel leaders, you're one of the two minstrel leaders, right. there's a way in which this allows them to tell this in this complicated, winking way, right? They're, they First of all, we should say you guys, everybody in the uh, ensemble pretty much is going in and out of extra roles. You've got uh, um, young black uh, male actors playing white women. You've got every possible thing. But you guys are flipping into the white roles uh, all the time. Yes. So maybe talk a little bit about what's your mental state about that? I mean, at times you're kind of winking and leering at the audience and playing this for a kind of dark comedy. Correct. But but maybe say more. Well, I am playing all the uh, Alabamians. So um, I, at first, was a little, it was very difficult because I always, I'm playing the villain is hard enough, but then when you're playing the truth, it was something that I had to embrace because I had to show the darkness of the people at that time. Mm-hmm. So uh, was it hard to 
maybe like facilitate maybe the body language, yes, but to show the darkness of the sheriff, the prosecutor, the attorney general, and all the people they encountered back then, the guards in the prison. Uh, I had to let the audience see the darkness they faced every day. Mm. And um, that's what I've been trained to do. So mm. that's what the job is. And it is, it's given me a wonderful vehicle to do so. So, sure. you know, Sean, I'm wondering if you have sort of a working theory of all this. I mean, um, as you approach it, I mean, we were talking before we went on the air uh, about the uh, Central Park Five um, uh, Netflix series by Ava DuVernay, which doesn't have any distancing mechanism. You're just kind of watching it all the time. And it's very, very painful to watch these horrible miscarriages uh, of justice. There's a way in which this framing device of minstrelsy, it's a show within a show, as, uh, as Ivory said, is... I don't know. It can give you a little bit of space. I don't know whether we should be allowed to have any space. What's your theory about why this either works or should be a way of telling the story? Uh, that's a great question because um, it's something that I battle with uh, Kander Neb often uh, because in Cabaret, when we did Cabaret, I always felt like they have this Brechtian approach in which they distance the audience from the show and, um, you know, you have the MC kind of presenting in that show. And I found uh, when I've seen the original production of this, I felt very distant from, I felt like the, we weren't allowed as much into the men's lives as I thought that we should do in this production. So one of the things that I stressed as we were working on this is that I didn't want the characters that Ivory and Tori, who plays Tambo, playing, um, I wanted them to be heightened and not clownish or buffoonish, you know, because I thought, you know, we would lose a lot of the heart. Mm -hmm. And in our space, which is different than Broadway, you don't have to be that large. And I really think that it ends up being a very um, effective choice. I feel good about mm -hmm. us going in that direction. And it may make it a little darker uh, mm -hmm. than the original uh, production because there was that distance. But I think that it's uh, it really works well for our cast and our production and our theater. Yeah. Playhouse on Park is a three-quarter uh, stage, so you're you know, practically stepping on the toes uh, of the people in the front row as you're walking around. It probably comes a little closer to way, the way a minstrel show might have been uh, in its day. So, Gail, you've done your stint as a facilitator. I'm just fascinated to know what did, what did you want to talk about and what did people want to talk about? Um, one of the things that I made sure that um, I brought up was the fact that um, they were still having menstrual shows <laughs> at, at my high school. But um, again, all of the themes that came out during the, the show that are prevalent today, some of the issues that um, are brought out through the production with wrongful incarcerations or wrongful con convictions, um, ineffective assistance of counsel, um, trying youths as adults, those are, those are issues that um, we still grapple with. Um, one, of the, one of the big things was um, when you had 
I believe it was Victoria Price mm-hmm. who recants, yeah. mm-hmm. and and yet Ruby Bates, yeah, yeah. Ruby Bates, yes. and and you know she the the nine boys who at that point are elated when they're awaiting the jury's verdict, knowing that um, this victim, supposed victim, had just recanted, and they're convicted once again, and 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 so. The audience, um, we in the audience discussed that and had the um, cast members um, discuss, you know, how they were able to portray those roles. Well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, DeVere and I found walking out of there, I mean, I've been following every jot and tittle of the Curtis Flowers case. He's uh, now eligible to be tried a seventh time for a murder on which the state has unbelievably weak evidence, and it's all in the hands of this one completely crazy prosecutor, but also watching the Central Park Five stuff. I mean, you don't have to go looking too far, as Gail is suggesting, to know that we're still living with this. For most of it, it's this kind of background hum, but the notion that we fixed everything after 1931 or 32 is is obviously, as she's suggesting, crazy talk. Well, I think that the thing that struck me the most, and there was admittedly some debate even within my family. My wife and I are both facilitators. And after seeing uh, the rehearsal um, debate about the the use, um, the, the danger or the potential of using the menstrual genre as a way to explore such traumatic history, um, on one side, uh, one of us, I'm not going to say who felt like <laughs> that uh, it was... Um, it did a disservice to the historical trauma of the experience. And then another person felt that the uh, absurdity of minstrelsy profoundly reflects the absurdity of racism, that making racism a butt of your joke um, exposes the ridiculousness of white supremacy. So there's that. But then also we were profoundly struck at the degree to which this case uh, articulates in this moment, today, the Scottsboro case, reveals the profound repetition of almost similar cases throughout history, whether we talk about Scottsboro in the 30s or the uh, tr- uh, the Trenton Six in the 1940s or the Harlem Six in the 1960s or the Central Park Five in the 1980s and 90s, this is a profound repetition of experiences with almost the exact same script. Mm. And that notion of it being a similar script speaks to the menstrual elements of real life. Right. And, you know, I mean, the other part of this, too, um, Ivory, you know, Sean and I were talking about distancing. I think one of the things that the minstrel element does, particularly the way that you guys are staging, is is it blurs some of the distinctions between audience and stage, self and others. There's a way in which I could watch this story and go, oh, well, that's a lot of really bad people doing some really bad things to some good people, and I'm out here in the audience. Whereas what you guys are doing, particularly with your proximity to us and your kind of layering of these questions of how is the story being told? Who's it being told to? Who's watching the story? What are we saying to that audience? What are we assuming about the audience's attitudes as these quasi-sinister minstrel uh, narrators? At the end of it, you may be a a little bit more aware of your own complicity and involvement as opposed to detachment from the story. Right. I I love that the intimacy of the theater is just putting a full out pop-up book right in the laps of all the audience play- watching. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that's what it has to be now. I think we have lost all luxury of 
oh, let's sit and get more information and figure it out. Let's see why this is still happening. What's going on? I think it has to be in your face now. In this, the injustices are still unanswered. This is why we all of a sudden we're doing Scottsboro Boys and Central Park Five is on Netflix and you just quoted three other cases that yeah. are numbers, of course. And I just think it's important that it is in the lap of people so we can do something. I think like you just said, the information it's not too hard to find it. I just feel the thing, the element that's missing is the doing and how we are going to what what steps now can we take small or big to create some type of momentum for change? All right. Uh, there is some momentum or change. We'll be talking about that as we go along here. There may not be enough, but there is some. Uh, let's take a little break. We'll come back with all four of these terrific guests. All right. We're talking about the uh, play The Scottsboro Boys. It is a musical, a candor and ebb musical. It's being staged right now at Playhouse on Park uh, in West Hartford. We have one of the cast members here with us, the director. We also have uh, with us uh, two facilitators. Uh, because of the charged nature of this material, it makes sense to have uh, conversations afterwards. Uh, so uh, they're bringing in people from the community uh, and uh, we're talking to them as well. So um, with that in mind, you know, um, so one of the two facilitators here is Gail Hardy, a state's attorney for the Judicial uh, District of Hartford. You know, it's interesting. I don't know what it was like back in Waterbury when the minstrel shows came to your high school. But I, I, find it, I found it interesting to sit here watching this show. In The night I was there was a pretty racially mixed audience. I, might, I don't know if it was 50-50, but it might have been pretty close. And as Ivory was pointing out, too, kind of a mix of young and old as well. And so I was sitting with my regular companion on one side of me. And then on the other side was a, a, a black man who I didn't know roughly about my age. And I could just tell body language, the occasional grunt or something like that. He's processing this in a somewhat different way from the way that I am too. I don't know if what your experience was as a facilitator, but I think no matter what we think, no matter how attuned we think we are to these issues because we've read Michelle Alexander or we've read Chokehold or we've read Charged uh, by Emily Bazelon, I think white and black audiences are going to process all this stuff a little differently. Maybe, I don't know what's your thought. Right. And um, for the dress rehearsal, my husband attended with me and um, he's, he's one who has watched the Central Park Five a number of times. He's, um, he's taped it um, and he, he's well read on um, – on a lot of historical accounts of Scottsboro Boys and um, civil civil rights and civil war and everything mm. everything in between, and when I asked him to attend with me, and initially this was going to be done in blackface, mm. and he was like, "I'm not going. I don't want to go." You know, who wants to see that buffoonery and, and so on? He walked out of the dress rehearsal and he was raving about the actors there. Um, he and I were happy that they decided to change course and not portray it in blackface. He and I, for different reasons, for me, 
as a prosecutor and um, hearing all the incidents that um, we see throughout the state where, you know, you have uh, kids who are, you know, donning blackface. Um, I believe there was an, there was an incident in Simsbury, which is in my jurisdiction, um, earlier this year or late last year, and you had different community activists calling for the young lady to be charged with a hate crime and, you know, to thereafter be a part of it, to be facilitating um, a play where initially I thought would be done in blackface. Um, you know, I was, I was sort of reluctant to do that. I, I have two two sons, and my older son is 25, and I said, hey, I want you to come see this play, and I'm going to be facilitating, and um, they're going to be doing the Scottsboro Boys, and it's going to be in blackface, and he, you know, he was very opposed to me doing that. Mm. We had black... our. The day I facilitated, the audience was largely white, but there were there was a group of black um, females from West Hartford. Um, I, I'd say it was about fifteen to twenty of them who came, and they were they were very active in the talkback, um, and you know it it was something that. I initially thought that you know they would be they would be highly opposed to and and uncomfortable about it but there were also whites in that audience who were very uncomfortable with what was being portrayed for them and what they were seeing and 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 hearing about what these nine young black men went through as a part of our criminal justice system. Right. And to Varian Baldwin, to me, one of the real questions for the audience is, do they think they're watching an anomaly or do they think they're watching the way things are? Uh, and so my son, who's a person of color, um, grew up in West Hartford uh, and uh, he, he's 29 now, but he went through a period where he was watching a lot of really bad reality TV. And there was like this one show that was just fixed cameras in traffic positions and stuff like that. Just yep. That's all it was. I mean, there was like no producing, no, there was nothing. It was just stuff that went down at intersections and stuff. And so I'd be walking through the living room. I'd sit down with them and I and the cops would come and do something. And I'd go, they can't do that. You can't do that. Uh-huh. And he'd go, well, they're going to do that. They're going to do that. Um, and we would sort of go back and forth, ideally a little bit more articulately than I just uh, pretended. <laughs> but, um, and, but I realized his set of expectations as a person of color about what was going to go down in any given situation yeah. were radically different from mine, even though I think he's, you know, been sheltered a little bit from, from some of this stuff. But, mm-hmm. I, yeah, go ahead. I mean, in terms of the, the blackface representation, uh, I think about for so years ago now, it didn't seem like it to me, but years ago when Dave Chappelle was really hot and, there, you know, he was using blackface with or minstrelsy, excuse me, the, the minstrel genre within the black tradition. So there's a long history of black people in blackface Mm -hmm. using minstrelsy as a genre to make fun of white supremacy. So these aren't representations of black people, idiot. These are representations of white ideas about black people. So we perform this, we're making fun of you. 
Mm-hmm. And so there was the inside, kind of the inside joke. Um, I feel like Dave Chappelle was working within that genre. Even some versions of the earlier play, The Color Museum, did some of that as well, which I found really fascinating. So there's a whole tradition of black people using blackface within black communities to make fun of or to, to parody white supremacy. But the issue becomes, it becomes an issue when you're in a mixed audience. Mm-hmm. Because as you enter into mainstream popular culture, in most cases, even today when we have a, a, a what we call a kind of a, a renaissance of black um, performance in popular culture, a lot of the black representations fall within the minstrel genre. Now, I mean, and by that I mean whites in blackface, you know, the traditional version of it. And so there is this anxiety or this tightrope that you're walking. So with the Dave Chappelle case, for example, he's making fun of white people with these black minstrel-like characters. But you had a whole segment of his audience base that said, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's how I know authentic black people. You know, which is one of the reasons why he walked away. People called him crazy, but that's one of the reasons why he walked away. And so there's that anxiety even now with a play like the Scottsboro Boys is that will white audiences see this as a parody of white supremacy or will they see it as an authentic representation? I knew it. That's how black people actually are. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that one is right or wrong, because I feel like using the minstrel genre I'm going to reveal my my opinion now. Using the minstrel (laughs) genre is a way to pull at the beyond the history the factual elements of it, to pull up the sentiment, the trauma, the pain of the experience. I think the, genre, the menstrual genre can do that, but it is a tightrope because there is always a possibility that looming over the whole performance is the idea that these performances confirm what white people think about black people all together. Mm-hmm. So, um, Ivory, can you – first of all, how much variation is there in the audience from night to night? I mean, I'm sure you can pick up vibes, pick up what's going on. I mean, can you tell how the audience is processing it? Do you get signals from them? And does it vary a lot from night to night? It varies a lot, but the one congruent is everyone is in shock. (laughs) There is the deafening silence. And people are (laughs) nervous to clap after certain numbers. And every, but I will tell you, everyone, age, color, whatever, they're listening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that they are taking it in. I think you get an avalanche of all things you accounted for. You get the, I can't believe this happened. I never knew this happened. What? This is still happening. You get, uh, is it really that dark? Did that? Did they really end up that way? Oh, my gosh. Every time, especially at the end of the show, Colin, mm-hmm. you get up. Every Scottsboro boy mm-hmm. tells of yes. their destiny mm-hmm. at the time. And it was you hear everyone whisper, oh, my gosh, oh, you hear all the reaction and they're verbal. And I know that the audience here are listening and I know that's one thing. Um, I love that we are all black artists doing this minstrel show because we are taking something back. We're taking back a personal identity by make, sitting it in the minstrel uh, genre. Um I think the hard thing is uh, trying to figure out the balance of are we reclaiming, are we celebrating, are we, is this the only way out? Um, what are we doing by putting it on, by doing this show and putting it on this way? I personally do think that we are breaking down a mechanism that had us in some type of chain. I think that we are reclaiming back a personal identity of our tapestry. I think we are looking at it and saying, okay, this happened, this is still happening. Some element needs to be new added to the mix. We need to do something because it's still going on. 
it, we have decades of information, decades of cases, and it's still going on. So uh, is it an anomaly? I, I think we wish it was, but... No, but it, yeah. it's, it's well, I want to talk a lot about that in our that final segment. Great. But, you know, to his point, and particularly, yeah. Sean, one of the things I was thinking at that moment where you get kind of the epilogues uh, for all the characters, um, you know... As growing up white in America and uh, wanting to have good intentions and stuff like that, what's the story we love? What's the book and the movie we love and now the play? To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a white savior narrative, right? This is – talk about an anomaly. This is the story where this really cool white guy shows up and fixes things, you know, and – uh, so as I'm – as you're watching Scottsboro Boys, there's kind of a latent expectation. You know, we do see uh, a white lawyer show up and try to help but not – that somehow or other there's going to be this Atticus Finch moment where stuff gets fixed. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that epilogue, you realize absolutely it just is not – there's no fixing. No. And I, maybe say a, a little bit more about that, maybe the way that that – I feel like the white part of the audience might be thinking, oh, yeah, this has got to turn out at least a little bit OK at some point. Yeah, and I, and I really as – a, as a theater person, as a producer and as a director, um, it's extraordinarily exciting to, to work on a piece that defies the, your, the conventional approach to uh, what you think a show um, what do you think a movie, what do you think a, a, a theatrical piece, what direction it should go in? And it does, I'm glad Ivory mentioned that, it does uh, have, uh, there's, a, there's a pit in your stomach that happens. And what's really great about, I think, working on this show is, is um, I, I, I think it does a really good job in, in taking the audience on this journey of these young men. So, so you do want to – the whole time, I believe, at least when I was first starting to work on it, it's like what is going to happen to these young men? What is – how are they going to get out? How is How are their lives going to be better? And their lives aren't better. And um, when one of the characters talks about um, how when he killed himself, mm-hmm. um, I think that's the real – kind of punch that's one of the mm-hmm. big punches and it is the fact that this was and that character happens to be the tragedy such the tragedy tragedy of of that that character is the fact that he's the most kind of angelic um character in the show who is constantly uh with his heart just uh reaching and trying to help and uh Justin does such beautiful work in that and for us to hear that at the end it's it's really that that his life was um, altered by this, and and uh, it it it's it ends up being so tragic, and yeah. So we're going to grab a break here. I want to talk about. Uh, I want to leave plenty of time to talk about how this turns up uh, in our lives uh, here in 2019, and in the lives of people making their way through the criminal justice system. So let's uh, grab a quick break. We'll be we'll be, we will be back with more. Hour and then closed by overruling the verdict that went against logic and facts. A verdict derived because the accuser was white and the accused was black. It would have been a much better story if it ended at that. But Alabama kept on coming back. And the saga went on and on for years and years. Telling lies, ruining lives, causing tears for racist fears. Scott's boys, they'll tell you what it's all about. All right, so we're back. Um, I keep forgetting to write the thank yous uh, for Wolfie to do. It's uh, my brain is scrambled because we're all 
on vacation and then not on vacation. But anyway, so uh, Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, did a fantastic job pulling this uh, show together. Uh, and uh, Kion Wolf is, in fact, on the board today making everything run. Uh, and our wonderful intern, Carolyn, is on the phones. Uh, and uh, let me tell you who's in the studio. Uh, Gail Hardy, a state's attorney for the Judicial District of Hartford. Devarian Baldwin, historian, cultural critic, professor of American studies at Trinity. Trinity. Uh, he's the author of Chicago's uh, New Negroes Modernity, The Great Migration, and Black America, uh, black urban life. Uh, Ivory McKay, actor who plays the role of Mr. Bones in the production of the Scottsboro Boys at Playhouse on Park, uh, which you should go see if you haven't already. Uh, and I should say actually that Gail and DeVarian are both uh, acting as facilitators with the audience after the shows on, on specific nights. Uh, and, um, and Sean Harris is a co-founder and co-artistic director of Playhouse on Park. Sean, how uh, much longer does the show run? Uh, it runs till August fourth. August fourth. So you got some time, but yep. don't don't tarry. So you know, Gil, we got to talk about how this. You know, well, first of all, we have to talk about how this turns up in the criminal justice system. And there's a lot of things going on right now. There is allegedly, not just allegedly, there's a real reform movement going on led by prosecutors like Eric Gonzalez. But still, you know, the um, Paul Butler, the guy who wrote Ch- Chokehold, former prosecutor, uh, he he said that uh, when he first went to work as a prosecutor. Uh, he realized that uh, if you have a real problem locking up black men, you're going to have a lot of trouble doing this job. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, maybe just talk a little bit about this, how, how you in your years as an up-and-coming prosecutor and now a prosecutor with uh, some considerable more decision-making authority, how do you look at all these questions? How do you try to make the system work as best as it possibly can? Well, first of all, um, I went to law school with the intent on becoming a public defender mm-hmm. because you know I wanted to I wanted to help my people mm-hmm. um, and I actually became a public defender and um, it was while I was working as a public defender in Bridgeport where the state's attorney for Waterbury then John Connolly um, called me up and said you know. Are you ready to come back home and and work as a prosecutor? And, um, you know, I had been a longtime state employee, so I knew that I was going to either work as a public defender or a prosecutor or, um, you know, maybe with the attorney general's office. But, um, you know, being a prosecutor and being um, black and being from a black community, I'm um, from the North End or the Long Hill section of Waterbury, where there were very few whites. That's something that's frowned upon because, um, you know, you're 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 locking up our people, mm-hmm. and how how could you perform a role like that where your job is to lock up more blacks? Um, one of the things that I look at, and, and actually what happened was while I was working as a public defender, my supervisor, who's um, now a judge, Bill Holden, um, said, I talked to him about it and, you know, how that would look. Is, is this something that I could do? And he said, you know, think of the power that you have as a prosecutor, you know, you can do more for your community as a prosecutor than you can as a public defender. Um, We're the gatekeepers of 
the criminal justice system. We determine um, what charges, who will be charged, what they will be charged with. We determine when those charges, when or if those charges should be dropped. And the entire time that I've worked as a prosecutor, one of the things that I, I hope that I'm adding is that perspective of the black community. And, um, you know, when, when I look at a police report, if there's something in there that seems unjust, if I follow it up and not allow it to get to um, the point where someone is pleading just to get the case over with. Um, because, you know, jail does have an impact, as we saw in the Scottsboro Boys. You know, people are negatively impacted by serving long periods of time or serving any time in jail. So, you know, maybe, you know, I'm not an Eric Gonzalez, um, but, you know, I, I have always tried to do what um, I can to make sure that if I can't prove this person's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, or maybe if this is a case that need not be prosecuted, or maybe if there's a diversionary program that a person can take advantage of, you know, I try to see to it that that option is available. And when you do that, when you divert instead of arraign, or when you uh, seek maybe the bottom end of the sentencing guidelines instead of the top end, when you, if you want to try to waive bail or set bail really low, or yeah, maybe drop charges, I, you know, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. You got, uh, I mean, you, as I say, you've got a lot more decision-making power these days than maybe you did uh, coming up. Coming up through the ranks, did you feel some kind of pushback against that. Like, we are here to get convictions. We are not here to figure out social programs that are going to help people. I, I never felt that that was my role as a prosecutor to get convictions. And, you know, before I was a public defender, I was a probation officer for nine and a half years. So a lot of the people, and I was in Waterbury, the community where I grew up, so uh, a lot of those people who were coming through the system they knew me. These were people I grew up with. These were people who, you know, I had seen around or um, because of the community that I lived in. These were these were friends. And, you know, it's not sometimes I, I, I specifically remember when I was a young prosecutor in Waterbury and reading a police report where um, a group of um, young black kids were hanging out on Mitchell Avenue, which is not far from um, the Waterbury Superior Court, and they were arrested for trespassing, and they lived at that address. Um, and it's hot, and it was late, and they disobeyed police orders to disperse. And, you know, I looked at it and said, okay, where, where are they supposed to go? What are they supposed to do? They're home. It's hot. They may not have all of, you know, the conveniences of, you know, maybe a judge or a, a lawyer where there's air conditioning. They're sitting outside. They're doing nothing. So is there a reason that this person should be, they were charged already. Is there a reason that they need to be prosecuted? No, there wasn't. And that's part of the power of being 
a prosecutor having the discretion, and it was never um, impressed upon me that there was a need to get convictions more so than doing the right thing. So, I mean, uh, in some ways, um, we may not be lucky enough to have enough Gail Hardys. Uh, we've got a gigantic prison population in this country. It's like 0.7 of our population is in some kind of incarceration right now. There isn't another country in the world that even comes close uh, per capita. There's something going on here, and it seems to fall disproportionately uh, on uh, around issues of, of both race and class. Yes. I don't know. How do you process all this? Well, I mean, when I looked at the, when I watched the play and just living my life, um, there's a way in which the play brought certain issues to the present for me in a way that went beyond just simply being a historian. And there's something about, you know, sure, I know all the facts. I know all the details. I've studied it. I'm a scholar of it. But then having those facts and details pervade my inner being in such a profound way, that that's what's happened with this play so that it raises issues of the fact that I remember my grandmother telling me that when she lived in Mississippi, growing up in Mississippi, that she could, that the, the smell of burnt flesh pervaded the air. Mm-hmm. I can, when I look at the current reform, uh, the, the medicalization of the opioid crisis, I feel profound resentment about remembering a whole generation of my peers being locked up when drug use was criminalized. So these things are extremely, you know, they're real, they're, they're profound. On, a, on another level, the degree to which we criminalize or prosecute or engage, particularly in this case, black working class and brown working class people, is through a perception of performance, how they should be, how they should act. Behavior is so profoundly, is, is so significantly uh, 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 instructive about how we are engaging with each other. And so the, the menstrual genre makes me think of that as well to the degree that you know, we look at people and if they don't act a certain way, if they do act a certain way, that becomes justification for prosecuting them, for criminalizing them, for seeing them as an enemy, for um, not presuming guilt, for seeing that they um, were making a, a, a false movement uh, to their, you know, to get their pencil or their phone and, and you was presuming it's a gun. Even something as small as the fact that I'm in the classroom, I have a PhD and when I'm up in front of the classroom and I'm engaging someone, um, the presumption that I am uh, being angry or uh, I, I am challenging or am I telling actual facts when it's a black subject or just my opinion? Or if I have on a suit, having a student come to me and say, oh, wow, you look like a pimp. So the, 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 the overlapping realities here of performance and history and criminalization and racial outcomes, I think all these overlapping elements come together in a play like the Scottsboro Boys. Yeah, and I want to get back to We're just almost out of time, and I want to make Sorry. sure we end with the show. No, that's fine. But, mm-hmm. you know, Gail, I, I think it's worth saying, I said maybe there aren't enough Gail Hardys. There aren't enough Gail Hardys. I yeah. mean, what, 250 prosecutors in Hartford? In I mean, Connecticut. In Connecticut. In Connecticut, yeah. And eight are eight. black. Oh, wow. So right. Okay. So there aren't enough Gail <laughs> it's, 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 it's not it's not a matter of speculation. So um, I don't know. I saw you I were doing some body language while yeah. he was talking. What's going on with you? No, I think that is what we are constantly going against every single day. We brought this up in a conversation after the show on Sunday mm. uh, about uh, and I remember telling the story about when I saw David Letterman in a interview and they were saying, oh, are you always bothered when people ask you for an autograph and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he's, you know, he said, I have encountered uh, 
a better humanity being a celebrity. So I embrace it. And for us doing the show here, we are in the theater, we are putting on the show, and we are, oh, you guys are wonderful. We walk out the door, we cross the street, and they wonder why there are seven black guys standing together in a circle. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that's this horrible truth that no matter, oh, you're wearing a suit today. Oh, you are refined. You mm -hmm. are together. But then you cross the street and take off the suit and you put on a pair of shorts. What are you doing here? Oh, yeah. But there's it, there's stories I could tell you, but oh. then, I, then I don't think any black actors will come here anymore. <laughs> Don, uh, Hartford Cops pick up, picked up Don Cheadle one time uh, because he looked – he was standing in front of a hotel or something, and he looked maybe a little bit like. So the bilingual you're saying is just I've I've yeah. been a victim of that. I have witnessed it. I have had friends go through it, and that's the thing that is still here, and adding that's a symptom that's not changing, right. and that's what we can't seem to want. To dismantle. Right. And when you hear that many of the individuals of the Scottsboro Nine, when they were released, mm -hmm. went into vaudeville, mm -hmm. it just hits you even harder. Right, because they knew, oh, that's my way of code. Yeah. That's my way of survival. Yeah. I, this is a job. Yeah. This is something you do because, oh, and riding on the fame, because you imagine, oh, you're one of the Scottsboro Nine. Oh, yeah, you could do our show. We, you have a little thing about you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's just, so, yeah. Ugh. Absolutely. Right. Well, hopefully as people see this show, first of all, hopefully a lot of people go yes. see this show. Uh, and hopefully as people see this show, they walk out into the night a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, the gentleman who was sitting next to me, the entire time I was kind of thinking, I should say something like at the end of the show. <laughs> Nothing, like, what do I say? I'm sorry? I mean, I, I did, like, there wasn't anything I could say that didn't sound kind of stupid to me. But, um, but maybe somebody will think of something better to say than that. And maybe as you walk out into the night, you can have a conversation with your neighbor and uh, get to know somebody a little bit better than you know Absolutely. them now. And maybe see them a little in a little less uh, categorized way than you see them sometimes. But first of all, I want to thank this incredible uh, panel. Uh, what a wonderful conversation this has been. We feel so lucky to get all four of you here. And uh, I'm, of course, lucky to have Betsy Kaplan to put shows uh, like this uh, together. So go see the Scottsboro Boys. It's Playhouse in the Park. There are tickets available. And thanks to Sean Harris, uh, Ivory McKay, Gail Hardy, Devarian Baldwin, uh, and to everybody here at NPR. We'll be back again tomorrow. <laughs>